This show is part of the RetroZap.com podcast network. You will never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Hello, and welcome to Beltway Banthas, a Star Wars podcast live from the hive of scum and villainy in our very own galaxy, Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Stephen Kent, and today we're going to be talking about Revenge of the Sith, looking back on the third chapter of the Star Wars saga and sort of reflecting on what it meant to us when it came out and what it means to us still today. My guest is going to be my friend, a television producer in New York City by the name of Andrew Kinlon, big Star Wars fan, big news guy, and uh, we have really connected over a love of this movie. And just this past month, May 2020, was the 15th anniversary, the 15th birthday of Revenge of the Sith, and it seemed like as good a time as any to talk about that movie. Um, I wanted to do this sort of uh, pre-taped or retaped introduction to the episode because it's now like almost uh, a month old. Uh, the, the show's kind of schedule just got away from me here in, in May and June. So this was taped in that time period and a lot has changed in the country and around the world since that time when this episode was put together. Um, George Floyd was murdered by Minneapolis police, I believe on May 27th or May 28th, and I mean, everything is different now. The state of the country's coronavirus epidemic, the lockdowns, our thoughts about them, and uh, many of our priorities as the country's national conversation on racism, on justice, on policing, and community uh, security and, and safety has been you know, brought to the forefront. And in some ways, it makes this conversation that we're about to have regarding the coronavirus and government feel almost just like a little bit too late. But then I was thinking about it this morning, and it also is still incredibly relevant for this reason. We're going to be talking about death. Um, We're going to be talking about how we try to control the course of of human events and how we try to control the societies in which we live to prevent bad things from happening. It's the the lesson of episode three that Anakin falls right into. He wants to control everything. He doesn't want to relive what happened with his mother. That that could happen with his, his wife, Padme. And he's willing to sacrifice pretty much everything to get there. It's a it's a ends justify the means kind of message that that movie puts forward. And so Andrew and I are going to be talking about, you know, do the ends justify the means when it comes to controlling the coronavirus and what we give up along the way. But what has has changed since the the conversation on policing has become so center um, to American politics right now is that While racism and systemic racism um, in our justice system is a long-running trend in American life and something that is, is, you know, more center to some people's existence than others, the world after 9-11 introduced a new kind of policing strategy and policing mentality 
to communities across the country. Um, again, I want to reemphasize that uh, black and brown Americans have a very different relationship uh, to police departments in this country that goes back decades. But much of what we're talking about in these protests, the Black Lives Matter movement, um, and what is being talked about when police are overreacting to protests and demonstrations and engaging in acts of brutality, is that the, the, the police department has adopted a militaristic mindset, not only in the kind of tools that they have, the way that they look, uh, but also in how they think about their jobs and how they think about who the American people are. Are they the people that they are there to serve and protect, or are they the people that they are meant to try to control. Uh, the war on terror changed police departments everywhere, uh, particularly in New York City. Um, and it has really warped, I think, our view of what a police officer is supposed to be. And I think that that is why we are arriving at this conversation of defund the police, because people want to have um, safe and secure communities, but they don't want to have like soldiers in their communities that are like an occupying force or feel like an occupying force. And many police officers don't want to do that either. But that is the role that we have asked many of them to play in the post 9-11 landscape because we were too frightened to deal with the fact that you cannot stop all acts of evil in this world. And we turned inward and have militarized our society in, in our own defense. And it's been a mistake. So with that being said, and all that kind of being being put out there as a, a context of this episode, we'll go over to this conversation with Andrew Kenlon um, about safety, about security, about death, coronavirus, the trade-offs, trying to control fate. Um, and I hope you enjoy it. I think there's a lot of substance here to be had. And we will be back the week after next with more, I think, directly tied to exactly what's going on in the news right now. Um, there's so much to discuss, and I, I look forward to doing that. But for now, here's episode three, Reflections with Andrew Kenlon. It has been 15 years since Revenge of the Sith, Episode 3, The Fall of the Republic, a move that so perfectly, or a movie that so perfectly executed Order 66 on all of our emotions, it remains to me one of the top three best Star Wars films of all time. And I, I, I say that quite seriously. It just feels to me painfully relevant still today episode three, because the problems we face now are in many ways similar to what we faced when revenge hit theaters in 2005 at the height of the Iraq war, war on terror, fear about what could happen in the second term of George W. Bush and a Cheney administration. We're going to break down why, or at least attempt to, but first, Andrew, to you, tell me a little bit about your revenge experience. What did it mean to you when you first saw that movie? So I was I was um, around fourteen when Revenge of the Sith came out, and by the time that movie had come out, I was already so uh, looking forward to that movie ever since uh, for years now. Like going back to you know seeing the Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones. That I, I know um, Lucas wanted to uh, pad everything down and give time for to watch you know to build up Anakin's uh, character and the start of the Clone Wars and everything but I, that was always a movie I wanted to see I always wanted to see the rise of Darth Vader you know the fall of the Jedi everything that was teased about since Obi-Wan had that throwaway um, 
line in the original Star Wars in 1977. You know, like for years I was reading that there, you know, like uh, it, it, everything led to this uh, lightsaber duel between Obi Wan and Anakin on a lava planet, and that was something I, I read when I was nine years old. And I was always wanted to see that. So that that movie was honestly like just was just rocked my world back then because I was so hyped for that. I was I watched all the trailers and TV spots ad nauseum. I read the novelization in advance, which I think is still probably the best Star Wars book I've read, and I I would actually um, argue is even better than the movie itself. I uh, highly recommend that if you're a fan of the movie. But yeah, that movie when I was when I finally saw that, I uh, just lived up to every expectation I could have. I really enjoyed it, and the experience I had it, it's one of the, it was one of the best midnight shows I, I ever went to. I've been to a ton of opening night shows, but the amount of just enthusiasm from that crowd, everyone in attendance, like it was palpable. Like you could just feel the energy, the excitement, and it was it was just really memorable. And actually, it, it it's brought to mind like a great a really something that can only happen in a pre um, aurora world is when i i had the, i came to this midnight show i had a darth vader uh movie quality lightsaber uh replica you know i'm talking about those like where you press the button and it shines up it looks like and i brought it with me and someone stopped me as i was at has my ticket i was going to the theater and i thought it was it was um you know theater security and they said hold on there what's that and i said oh this is a lightsaber and i thought they were going to tell me to um you know not bring it in the theater and like put it back in the car but he just he said oh no i just want to take a look at it and i gave it to him and he spent like a few like a minute or two just like waving it around just having fun with it so some of my most warm star wars memories are of the episode three showing because it was my first showing that i was allowed to go to the midnight one with my friends and and with no parents uh just because of the age that i was at that time um and so it was just that was my big star wars theater experience um, even though I went to the other ones with my parents, it was the most special to me. But that movie, it's it's the end of a journey in the prequels of Yoda's warning to Anakin about his fear. That fear as a pathway to the dark side. That fear leads to anger. That anger leads to hate. And that hate leads to suffering. And this movie, I think, is the... It's all of those things wrapped up in one, but it, of course, ends in the suffering with the decline of the Republic, the rise of the Empire, and Anakin giving away everything that he knows and loves in exchange for saving a life. It's all about saving Padme from her untimely death that he does not want to repeat with what happened with his mother. Anakin's like number one problem is that he just can't let things be. Um, the 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 scene where he's sitting with Yoda in Episode Three and talking about his visions, visions you're having. He is is expressing a fear about losing someone, and Yoda says to him, you know that um, you have to train yourself to to let go of everything that you fear to lose. And you know that he's not going to do that. <laughs> um, you know, I remember going back to school after Revenge of the Sith, and my friends were all talking that week um, during lunch about how we were headed towards the same thing as well with George W. Bush and the War on Terror, and that obviously one day this you know War on Terror idea was going to come home. And that you couldn't actually fight a war on terror 
without it eventually becoming just a war on all uncertainty. Like I really remember these conversations, and they're like George Bush is you know pretty much just gonna gonna end up saying that he's he's got to stay in office past his term to fight this war and terror thing. I mean, did you did you ever have any of those like thoughts back in two thousand five? Or were you not particularly engaged in politics? I, I, I feel like an alien sometimes when I'm thinking about being someone who was thinking about that at, at age 15. I wasn't particularly engaged in politics at the time, but even back then, I like the, the parallels did, did not escape me. I mean, there's that famous line in, you know, towards the end of the movie where Obi-Wan confronts Anakin on Mustafar, and Anakin says, you know, if you're not with me, then you're my enemy. And that is obviously a, a reference to you know president george w bush's uh, speech to congress right after 9-11 you know the famous you're either with us or you with the terrorists and that you know complete that does a great job of like highlighting that black and white uh kind of mindset we had back then in the world in the war on terror and that we frankly we still have to this day yeah yeah and no, i think that's it's it's only intensified since then uh but i think that mindset uh that we used to have about the broader world um, has really turned inward. Like I really do think that the war on terror has culminated in just us tearing each other apart. Now that we don't really know like what the enemy is, um, it, it, it sort of, in my mind, was was inevitable that political divides were going to become incredibly rancorous and more clear by the time the war on terror became really fuzzy. Um, and it's still going on. Like We still have an ongoing war on terror mentality, but nobody knows that we're engaged in it. All we're afraid of at this, at, of, at this point is each other. Yeah. And I think kind of the reality too is that, you know, it, it's almost kind of this sense of, uh, com- it's commonplace now because, you know, this has been going on now for nearly 20 years. So I think like, you know, once that had happened, when Bridges Sith came out, you know, we were, the war in Iraq was only going on for about I believe two years at that point, at least, you know, late 2002, early 2003. So that was still relatively a fresh concept at that point, but, you know, following the years after that, you know, how long that war went on and then it led to the rise of ISIS. And then, you know, we saw what happened there and then, you know, what what's happened in the last few months alone, like, it's hard to believe, like, you know, the end, the beginning of the year, because I feel, you know, January feels like a lifetime ago, you know, we nearly went to war with Iran. Oh my gosh. That was that was yeah. that was a moment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's hard to remember that because of all this now. But you know, it, it's interesting you bring that point up, you know, that your fr- your friends those conversations your your conversations you have with your friends about is Bush going, you know, at that point would Bush use the war on terror to, to argue his case to stay in office beyond his term. And now you're seeing that again now with people making that same argument with uh, President Trump saying is he going to use COVID-19 to uh, argue to stay in office. So, I mean, it's it's a it's a case of like you know the the more things change, the the what the way that they uh, things still stay the same. Yeah, well, because the threats are always the same when it comes to democracy. Like the reason that we have the system of government that we have is because of an assumption that human beings generally cannot be trusted and need to be restrained um, by documents and systems of government that make it really, really hard for them to do the kinds of thing that I think our founders were, were concerned about them doing, usurping um, the people, holding on to more power than they, than they should, um, because, you know, shit happens, right? Crises happen, and that is always the kind of situation in which people grab for more. They want more control. And I don't 
necessarily think often about Trump making the case for staying over his term for crisis management, but I do think often about him making the case for election fraud. Um, and that, like, in the context of an election in November, which is going to be a, a total S show, guys. Like, we are not pre- we are not prepared for what's about to happen in November. I can't um, wait to cover that. <laughs> yeah, that that the president is going to be um, quite bullish about the no matter which way the results go. That like the entire process was borderline illegitimate. Um, my biggest concern is that Donald Trump has normalized in many ways the rejection of the. Um, legitimacy of our elections, and the Democrats have kind of picked up on that since Trump started to do the same thing. I think the the loudest example um, was Stacey Abrams in Georgia, and you're going to see this coming from the resistance types in November if Joe Biden loses. Not that they like Joe Biden anyways, but that when Joe Biden loses, that it's a result of not enough remote voting being taken place and, and you know collusion again from Russia and meddling from Russia. Like There's just a continuing sense based off our fear and paranoia and lack of control in these situations that nothing matters anymore and that nothing is real. And you'll see that from the other side too. You know, in the event that Joe Biden does win in November, you'll see that as well. You know, arguments that it was it was fraud. I mean, we saw that in 2016, where you know, like the like uh, President Trump argued that the reason that he did not uh, that although he did win the electoral vote, he did not win the popular vote was due to voter fraud. And I mean, that was not proven. But again, I mean, yeah, I mean, that is a case. Like you'll see, you may see, you will see that from the left, but you all may see that you also will see that from the right. It, it that's just dirty politics. There. You know the the relevance of Revenge of the Sith, the reason that it is always going to matter is because it is a movie about wanting to control the things in life that in many ways are are just sort of natural. Um, death being a natural part of life. Anakin has a vision that Padme is going to die in childbirth, which um, is a thing that happens. Sometimes people die in childbirth. It's uh, it's it's just a fact of life. It's pretty rare these days, and in most advanced societies, and in less advanced societies, it is more common. Um, in a galaxy far, far away, it was always kind of peculiar that they could not rectify this situation. But I think we all understand begrudgingly that Padme died of of spiritual causes, not necessarily um, physical complications to the pregnancy. She died of a broken heart, a loss of her will to live, but it was as a result of Anakin's actions. It was like an ultimate irony sort of situation. But Anakin sees this death coming around the corner in which he was not able to stop the death of his mom. Yoda tries to tell him that death is a natural part of life. We must rejoice for those who become one with the Force and learn to let go. Anakin does not want to let go. And when you think back to the War on Terror, the War on Terror was a war against uncertainty. It was a freak-out, paranoia moment that there could be a suicide bomber on any corner, that any plane could be hijacked at any time, and that we needed to do something. People always say that. You got to do something to make sure that there is no one hurt, that no one gets killed in a terror attack that doesn't have to be. 
And if you are against that, if you are against allowing for some uncertainty in American life, then you're with the terrorists. You remember this, right? Yeah, that was, uh, it's, I mean, in, in fact, like, you know, prior to, uh, like, I rewatched Revenge of the Sith, like, uh, prior to, you know, us recording this, you know, for the 15th anniversary. And it, it is just striking how relevant it is now. I mean, like, you see, like, you know, it, I, I felt kind of almost a little eerie watching it when you see, like, scenes like, you know, with Obi-Wan, you know, and Anakin bringing up that Palpatine, you know, has stayed in office long past his term expired. You know, he should have been out by now, but it's, you know, he's used emergency powers to stay in, in control because there's a war going on. And then you have talk about, you know, of the Jedi growing more and more restless and uh, distrustful of the chant of Palpatine saying, you know, if he doesn't, if he does not uh, leave office after, you know, the war is over, then he has to be removed. I mean, that's what we're seeing now. We're seeing, we've, we've been seeing that the last couple of months with, you know, talks of this, of people using their, uh, using a crisis to, uh, further their goals to, to further. Are you, ta- are you talking about the invoking of, uh, whatever amendment to remove the president? Is that what you're referencing? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He must well, I mean, be it's, removed it's, from office. Yeah. And it's not just, and I mean, it's not just like, uh, again, it's not just a pre- you know, thing with president Trump. You're seeing that over all over the world. You're seeing with people like Duterte with, uh, uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil. I mean, that is, you know, that is, I think one of the key elements of what makes that movie so timeless and so relevant is true to reality where you have, where, some, where you face something that the populace is afraid of and they're uncertain and they don't know how to deal with it. They're going to look to their leaders and said leader will use that to exploit their power. And so, so this is kind of like the tie-in between the war on terror and why we're saying it's relevant today, which is coronavirus. Um, look, I, I, I hate to be callous, and I, I don't want it to be taken the wrong way here, but death is a natural part of life. Viruses are a somewhat natural part of life. Um, pandemics are something that happen every century, hopefully not more than once a century. It is, I don't think, a stretch to say that it is wrong to burn down all institutions, all democratic norms, all systems of government and our economies, to stop every single person possible from being exposed and killed by coronavirus um, from, from facing that, that fate. Like, the, the, there is only so much that you can control for without completely curbing all of your your rights and giving away your freedom. Um, this is what I think a lot of people on the political right see and are taking a little bit too far. But it, it, the, the thing about Revenge of the Sith is it, it is the exact trade-off that you are making when you are saying that it is unacceptable for a single person to die who does not have to die. And if you are not willing to like move heaven and earth and kill some younglings to stop <laughs> that thing from happening, then then you know what what good are you? Am I wrong? Am I way off base here? I don't know if you're off base. I mean, I, I see the argument. I mean, it's def- it is definitely more. I would argue. I would say it's a little bit more nuanced than some arguments I've been seeing the last couple of weeks from you know more right right leaning circles. But there is still that idea that, you know, like, um, 
you know, we're, we're facing uh, with COVID-19 right now, we're facing something we've never dealt with before. It's unlike the war, unlike the war on terror, where, you know, it's very easy to identify a villain in that case. That's the thing we always, you know, as, I don't know if it's an, we as Americans or as we as humans, but we always love to identify a bad guy, someone to blame. And we don't have that in this case. Yeah, I mean, yes, China, uh, I mean, there, I don't think you'll find anyone who, will, who won't argue that China bungled, bungled this up spectacularly in its origins. But this goes beyond China now. I mean, there's no boogeyman to point at to be like, you know, this person, you know, uh, because this person like attacked us. Like, no, we weren't attacked. It really was just spread around the world through no, uh, you know, through no, no one's fault of their own. So, yeah, well, I mean, it was spread around the result uh, world as a, you know, just a, a long term result of globalization and the world becoming more smaller and interconnected. And that's a good thing. But it has huge pitfalls, which is that we're vulnerable um, to sickness being spread. And you just have to worry. And the reason that I, I kind of come keep coming back to this idea of like the war on terror was a war on uncertainty. The the coronavirus response and the crackdowns across the country, uh, particularly in areas uh, where you're living, which you know is facing this a lot more starkly, you know, it's it's a war on uncertainty. It's it's this it's this fear that even for all of the population that are not an at-risk group, um, that they need to be sheltering inside and not engaging in daily life and going to work and, and engaging in commerce, that it is wrong for any person to die of coronavirus. Um, and that if it can be prevented, then it's like equivalent to to murder by politicians and public officials. Like this is this is just running rampant in the media, right? That like any governor that takes moves to restore commerce and and daily life, if someone dies, they will they will be harangued for it, right? If somebody does get sick going to the beaches or going to a restaurant, like uh, some some news host is going to hold that against them and say they are responsible for this person's death. When my argument would be that they're not. They're not responsible for people's death. People die. People get sick. This is a virus, and it's very scary. But it also does not impact the broader population. It's like ravaging retirement homes across the country really, really badly, particularly in New Jersey and New York. And we really have to be careful of how we're spreading it and what we're doing when we go out and wearing masks. Like Wearing masks is so, so, so important to how this thing can be stopped. Um, and we have a duty to each other, but like, how much are we willing to give away to say like that every single life was preserved? I, I don't, I don't know where those trade offs are, but I'm sorry, Revenge of the Sith to me was always like the document, the manifesto for why you cannot be willing to give up everything for stopping uncertainty or for having certainty in every area of your life. Well, I think that definitely applies. I mean, going back to Revenge of the Sith, and ta- you're talking about, you know, the the Anakin's role in that movie and trying to prevent Padme's death. I mean, that speaks to his character. I, that's been part. Of, I think that speaks to his character as far back as even the Phantom Menace. Like, this is a character who always longed to be. He's uh, him and Luke, like him, him and Luke. Uh, they have very similar character arcs. It's just that Anakin, who was also came from nowhere and grew up a slave, you know because of being in that role where he was constantly looked down upon and, you know, was subservient to everybody else. He, you know, that, that creates that sense of longing for power to be, you know, to rise above everybody else. And that continues in, you know, attack of the clones where he rants about, 
you know, he's, he will, you know, one day he'll be the most powerful Jedi ever. And, you know, he, yeah, well, I should, well, I should be. And then you see that again in Revenge of the Sith where, you know, he can't process that, you know, his mother's death was something he just couldn't control. Yeah. I mean, that just was out of his reach. There was nothing he could do about that. And even when he's faced with that again with, you know, visions of Padme's death, he just naively thinks that just because he is, you know, a powerful Jedi now that all of a sudden that means he can be, he can just, you know, change, decide how people can live and die. He can, he has the power to do that. So tricky, like even like saying and kind of working through these thoughts, like I, I don't feel great like taking this position because this virus is dangerous and like we need to do better. American life and, and American individualism is is kind of causing this thing to remain um, uh, strong longer than it should be. You know, you, like you look at countries like Sweden who did not have some sort of authoritarian crackdown like they did in China, and they've been able to curb and slow this thing down because I just think people there have like a general culture of like decency and doing what's good for the community over American rugged individualism where they're like, you want me to wear a mask? How dare you? I'm not some sort of snowflake. I'm going to go out to Costco and refuse to wear my mask because it's a statement. Like that's an, um, really is like an, an American problem. It and is. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and you mentioned Sweden. I mean, like you look at, I think the two countries that did the best job of hand, of containing it was Australia and uh, South Korea. I mean, those were cases where they had, the, like, as soon as they had their cases brought to their shores, they acted quickly. And they're now on the cusp of, you know, almost being done with this because they took those precautions. And, you know, they, they were sure they made sure not to sugarcoat it to their citizens. And, you know, people were willing to make that short-term sacrifice. And I don't know if that's an American thing, but, you know, the right, the way it's going now, we it's we're gonna be it's gonna be a while before we're out of this. Because I, just, I even saw I even saw today in the news, you know, like it's more, you know we're, you know it's Memorial Day weekend that we're recording this, and I already saw in the news today like people going like packed beaches in Georgia and Florida. I mean, that's just a case of like um, you know even even when we're doing well, we're still not doing enough to help each other out, you know, because we still. We still, we still like miss those vices of like, oh, I want to go to the beach. I want to go to the gym. I want to go see a movie. It's like, well, we all do. Nobody likes this, but you know, it's a case of you have to make that sacrifice. Not to, not so much for you, but for others. Yeah, and and you know, the only thing I would say to push back on that is like, I I, I try to keep my balance, like my intake of of information from CNN, from Fox, from MSNBC to NPR, and then just straight from whatever Dr. Fauci is saying. In my understanding, and this has kind of evolved in the past week, is that like there is really minimal risk to being at the beach, uh, to contracting and spreading coronavirus at the beaches, in open air, in bright sunlight, and in these hot environments. And there is increasingly more information that shows that like it's not like a, a contact surface sort of problem like that you're not going to have a huge risk of getting this stuff from tables and from surfaces but you have a huge risk of getting it from face-to-face interactions with people and spittle from people's mouths and respiratory contraction like that's where this thing is which comes back to the masks like maybe people do need to be at the beaches but people need to be wearing masks when they are not hanging out at the beach and they're not doing that enough and if we had more people wearing masks and taking that responsibility on and being courteous, this wouldn't be as big of an issue. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's wrong to go to the beach. It's all just how it's handled. Like, 
it, like I understand like if you want to go to the beach, that's fine as long as you you know uh, you know you behave responsibly and you social distance. But you know the the footage I was seeing today, you wouldn't have thought there was a pandemic going on with the with how crowded these beaches were, like how everyone was like close to each other and people aren't wearing masks. It's if it, it felt like just like your average Memorial Day weekend. Chomping at the bit, and I, I know it's it's really painful and hard for people to deal with, but you know I do agree. I would I would not be on a crowded beach right now, partially just out of my my own sense of like what is smart, and then I would just uh, feel weird about that because I know like you know you can be a silent carrier and you can pass this stuff around without knowing it, and and that's what really kind of concerns me. I went swimming today at a river. But we were one of like only four people there and didn't get near anybody. And I felt okay with that. Um, but, you know, Revenge of the Sith, like the reason that it just has so much power is because it just tells us this lesson. And I, I take Star Wars seriously. I really look to it as, as a source of wisdom that is somewhat eternal, which is that there are going to be just horrible things that happen in your life and in the world that really are out of your control. And I understand why people are willing in many cases to like offer their governors and the federal government sometimes a blank check to solve problems and make people safe. But there are some things that once you let the thing out of the box, right, that you just can't put back in. And I, I really really worry about some of the trade-offs that we've been making throughout the coronavirus pandemic response. Um, you know, just the idea that the entire economy and businesses that are gonna never open again can be shut down in a whim by all of these politicians who basically are trying to shut things down as quickly as possible to protect their political careers so that they don't face blowback if people die um, from getting sick, like you can't piece people's lives back together and, and you can't piece the economy in many ways back together the same way once that has happened, right? I mean, it's a tricky subject, yeah. I mean, there's it's all it all depends on how, like the action that we're seeing right now. I mean, again, I I I I don't want to sound repetitive, but you know, going back to what you're seeing with South Korea and Australia, their economy, I mean, like they got to start, they got started right away. And now because of that, their economy isn't, isn't on the verge of collapse anymore. They're doing well over there. And I think it's just, it's all just a matter of, again, people seeing this through the prism of, you know, a black and white world, you know, it's either you either do this or you do this. It's like, no, I mean, like you need to have some middle ground there. I mean, like, yes, we need, I mean, like, I understand the need that, you know, we can't have the economy shut down forever. I mean, I, well, first of all, I don't think anyone's arguing that when people are saying, oh, they want the economy shut down for years and years. I don't think, I don't, I haven't seen, I haven't seen anyone make that argument like President Trump has said, people are saying. But also, like, yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's one of those things where, like, and this is anecdotal always. Like, this is anecdotal. I can look on my Facebook timeline and somebody posted just the other day, they're like, no, actually, no one should be forced to go back to work until every single person. Quote, every single person feels safe. And I decided not, I decided not to respond to that because I was like, dude, like, I'm sorry, but not every single person is ever going to feel safe. No, ever. that's yeah, that's the case. I mean, like at, that, that, again, that's the black, that's the prism of living through having that black and black and white lens for the world. It's people saying, Oh, like, I can't do it until we have a vaccine. Well, 
that's going to take, we're not going to have it until next year, you know, you know, at the very least. So I think that's the case of like people saying there is an argument to be made that yes, we need to be, we need, uh, we, we can't have the economy collapse, but we also need to be sure we're ensuring social distancing methods. We're making sure that people are safe, that testing is, is, is being readily available. And I think, you know, certain states are handling that well. I mean, like I think uh, particularly New Jersey, I know a lot. I, I know a lot of people in my state are not happy with the lockdown orders, but you know we're going through a very gradual reopening phase. You know, it's not like you know our governor is saying that we're never going to reopen. We've already been doing it. You know, we can do as of now. You know, just the other day, our governor issued order like an order that people can you know meet up to you can pe- pe- there can meet up to ten people gatherings indoors and twenty outside. You just need a social distance and. I think that's the, we can do that at least. I mean, like we're not going to get, we're not going to get this. Our, uh, also, go ahead. No, I was going to say our executive order from governor Northam in Virginia was order 55. And I, <laughs> <laughs> I just, was like, you're just so 11, close. You're just 11 orders away. <laughs> 11 orders away from the greatest <laughs> order Virginia could ever have. Um, Andrew, that, that kind of brings us to time here on, on this channel of into the Sith. I, I appreciate you joining me to talk about this because, you know, just the, the war against fear and the war against uncertainty, it's never going to go away. There's going to be another battle next year uh, and the year after that um, in different aspects of our lives. This is like small battles that we face in our communities and in politics and these really, really large macro ones like the war on terror, like pandemic. Um, my, it, it takes a certain amount of Zen um, to step back from it all and just go like, okay, I mean, like I'm, I have to be at peace somewhat with there being things that I cannot control in life. Um, but I'm going to do the most that I can as an individual to be responsible and respect others and take care of my community. Yeah. I mean, that's really, I mean, where we're at right now. And, um, unfortunately this does, this does come at a time where, you know, as a country we are divided, we are as divided as we've ever been. And I think that's another reason why, uh, why, you know, Revenge of the Sith still resonates with that is that, you know, that's what we, you know, you see that in that movie, you see friendships fall apart, you see entire institutions and and norms just be completely upended and destroyed. And, you know, as the way, and and as if we keep doing this the way we are, I mean, it's not going to get any better. And I think that's one of the lessons that we saw from that, uh, from that prequel trilogy is, you know, uh, if, you know, that one of the flaws of the Jedi is that they were just constantly distrustful they were too pri- uh, prideful that they would they were always right they were always they were never in the wrong and that they were uh, righteous and uh superior in every way to the sith and you know they it was because of that that they were too stubborn to see literally like literally the the their enemy was literally within spitting distance of them with palpatine you know if they had not lived in that black and white uh, mindset that they had, they would have, you know, discovered who he was, and they probably would have would have stopped, put a stop to his plans. But because they were too stubborn like that, we, you know, we, we you know, they got what what was coming to them. Incredible, incredible hubris, um, Andrew Kenlon. We'll be right back after this quick break with Bantha fodder.
All right, and that brings us now to our legendary Bantha Fodder segment, where our guest and myself can rant about anything that's on their mind, Star Wars, politics, or otherwise. Andrew Kinlon, what's your fodder? So my fodder is um, in the wake of Revenge of the Sith's you know, 15th anniversary, I've seen a lot of Star Wars fans come out of the woodwork and defend the prequel trilogy as you know misunderstood masterpieces and how Disney screwed everything up. And these are the same types of fans that 10 years ago were saying the exact opposite. They said how the prequels ruined their childhood and Star Wars is just dead and they would wit- they would ri- they would like anybody but George Lucas to make more Star Wars movies. And now they've come around and because they didn't like The Last Jedi, because they don't like how Disney has been handling the property, now they've come around on George, now George Lucas was always a genius. He was always the mastermind. He was always like the best director for Star Wars. And now, ironically, I'm seeing these fans say they would love to have him back. So that's that's kind of that kind of little change has been bugging me a little bit because I, as much as I, I love, listen, I love Star Wars. I I'm a huge fan, but I I am not hesitant to say that Star Wars I think has one of the worst fandoms around right now in pop culture. I think, I think the Brick and Morty fans and the DC fans are, are up there. I say this as someone who loves both of those properties as well. But with Star Wars fans, I think I always find it it's just a fickle bunch because, again, it's a case of, like, when they say they want something, it's really not what they want. I mean, you saw with the prequels. I mean, yes, those movies are flawed, but, like, you know, people were saying, oh, I don't want this. I want it more like the original trilogy. Okay, so the sequel trilogy comes out. And they're like, oh, no, this is too much like the originals. You know, the prequels, they were original. And they had all this, like multi-layered storytelling with the politics so it's literally a case of i don't want to say you're damned if you do you're damned if you don't but it's always kind of frustrating i think seeing fans just frequently like change positions at the top of the hat i don't think it's i don't think it's that reasonable to change opinions on anything i mean like i've come around on you know movies over the years uh i uh like for revenge of the Sith, i loved it when it came out and then as i got into college and i was studying film more i really kind of was not a fan of the prequels and i included sith in that bunch but now over the past couple of years, you know, especially in terms of how politically relevant it is now, I've come around to it again. So I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But to see like fans completely change, you know, just come, do a 180 and try to pretend that they didn't hate George Lucas to begin with and that he they always loved him. And it's re- it's really that evil Kathleen Kennedy they hate so much and she ruined everything. Is I just think it's so tiresome. Tiresome indeed. Thank you so much, Andrew. For my Bantha fodder, Trump has tweeted yet again that he's going to make Antifa an official terrorist organization. Tiresome indeed. Thank you so much, Andrew. So for my fodder, Trump has said yet again that he is going to have Antifa labeled a terrorist organization. This comes after many of the nights of unrest, um, kind of uh, protesting, rioting, looting in cities across the country. And this raises some really important questions that I think are related to what we talked about on today's episode uh, about the war on terror and whether or not we have learned any lessons from the post-9-11 era about freedom, 
versus security. Um, Antifa is an organization that I very, very much dislike. It's a sort of a disjointed grassroots movement of violent leftists who don't agree uh, with some people's right to speak their mind, exist, or have political opinions outside of their own. And I find them to be um, pretty awful. But they are not a terrorist organization. They're this Again, disjointed grassroots movement, um, you know, with with no clear leadership structure, um, guiding principles between each chapter around the country, and the the label of terrorist organization unlocks federal powers um, that I, I don't think many people think about what is going to mean. Um, if you start labeling someone or something a terrorist organization, it's going to unlock their ability um, to do away with civil rights um, of American citizens. Uh, whether or not Antifa like to think of themselves as American citizens, <laughs> they, they probably don't enjoy thinking of themselves that way, but they are. And they have uh, those fundamental rights. And any effort to label them um, as anything else, uh, which would strip them of their rights, would be wrong. And I would hope that it would get jammed up in court indefinitely and not be allowed to happen. So that is my Bantha fodder. This has been another episode of Beltway Banthas. I hope you have all really enjoyed it. My guest today has been my friend and television producer, Andrew Kinlon. You can find him tweeting at AJ Kinlon. That's K-E-N-L-O-N. And Beltway Banthas is part of the RetroZap podcast network. You can find RetroZap at www.retrozap.com and at RetroZapped. Um, great podcast network, a lot of great shows, and Beltway Banthas loves being part of the Retro Zap family. We're going to be back the week after next with more. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about um, in regards to the politics of Star Wars and the lessons that it can teach us about what we are seeing going on in the country today. I've been your host, Stephen Kent. Thank you so much for listening, and may the Force be with you always. Always.